once or twice a year, have the children as part of their exam when they're coming into clinic to also undergo ultrasound evaluation of particularly problematic muscles, be it the gastroc, the hamstring, and looking at how the stiffness of this muscle changes over time. And that may impact when we decide to proceed with injections. Welcome to the HAP MNR Journal Club, a podcast where we introduce you to thought leaders who are published in the American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. This is a show about practices, research, and education that are shaping the field of physiatry in inspiring ways. The Journal Club is brought to you by the Association of Academic Physiatrists, or AAP, an intimate and influential professional society that brings together leading minds at every career level. Physiatrists and professors, directors and med students, researchers and residents, this is your behind-the-scenes look at people and ideas that will influence your future. Your host is Dr. Eric Wasatsky, an AAP member with Georgetown University School of Medicine. Hi, this is Eric Wasatsky coming to you from the MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital. Uh, Today, I am joined by my guest co-host, Dr. Lindsay Miglior, one of our outstanding uh, PGY3 residents here. Dr. Miglior, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Dr. Rosatsky. You're always an excellent hype person. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Happy to have you. Uh, We are very honored to have as our guest on the podcast today, Dr. Jolene Brandenburg. Dr. Brandenburg is a pediatric physiatrist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She is a a true national leader in the field of pediatric physiatry and researcher, and we're very honored to have you on our podcast. Thank you, Dr. Brandenburg. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. So we're very excited to talk to you today about your very recently published article uh, in the July edition of the American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. The article is titled, Quantifying Effect of Onobotulinum Toxin A on Passive Muscle Stiffness in Children with Cerebral Palsy Using Ultrasound Shear Wave Elastography. So, Dr. Brandenburg, we were hoping we could start things off by you giving us kind of a brief summary of this uh, research paper. So, this paper involves uh, looking at muscle stiffness in children with cerebral palsy and how their muscles respond to botulinum toxin injections. Um, In particular, we're using a newer tool, shear wave ultrasound elastography, to measure this stiffness. Um, And this is a way of basically looking at the elasticity or the stiffness of individual muscles, which is something we really haven't been able to do before. Uh, And overall, we found that there was a change in muscle stiffness when we used uh, botulinum toxin injections and that this effect seemed to be peaking around one month And at three months, the effect was uh, wearing off with regards to muscle stiffness. But we didn't find things like a significant change in their uh, range of motion. So we were looking at the gastroc muscle. We didn't find a significant change in ankle range of motion. Um, And we didn't find a significant change in uh, spasticity measures. Well, thank you. I think that's a great, succinct summary. I found this very interesting to read in that I had no prior knowledge of this technology, ultrasound uh, shear wave elastography. In fact, I practiced my pronunciation of that term several times, so I wouldn't (laughs) screw it up here. Uh, 
So I was trying to wrap my brain around the technology um, in terms of a simplistic explanation of this. Would you say this is basically a measure of how easily the ultrasound beams move through the tissue as an indirect measure of stiffness of that muscle? Um, basically, so what this technology uses is it actually uses the push beam from the ultrasound probe, so it's a very similar to the beam that you'd use for using uh, typical B-mode imaging that we do for most uh, everything with ultrasound-guided injections, but the push beam is a little bit uh, longer duration, so with that, it has some energy to be able to move the tissue or create waves that go through the tissue. And it's not something you can feel. It's a matter of, of like microns. So it's not something you can feel or see, but the ultrasound can detect this movement. And the harder or the stiffer the tissue is, the faster the waves go through or the faster the speed of the shear waves. Thank you. That's helpful. I'd highly recommend to our listeners to really uh, pull open the article and look at some of the uh, images in the article. I think it really helps kind of hammer home Dr. Brandenburg's points to help you really understand what was done uh, in this research. So for uh, our next question, I'll pass the mic to Dr. Miglior. So like any good resident, the first thing I did when I got this paper was take a look at the methods section. And specifically when you were describing the botulism toxin injection protocol, uh, it stated that the technique varied per position. How many different physicians performed the injections? Uh, and did you notice any difference in outcomes amongst the different physicians? A oh, very interesting question. So as part of the protocol that we were doing, we actually didn't do any alterations with regards to the botulinum toxin injections for the study itself. So this was children who were needing these injections and the muscles that needed to be injected were based on what the physician felt. Now, there were two of us that were doing the injections, uh, and I have to say the other injector, someone who was trained by me, so the injection protocols that we do are very similar. Um, we all use electrical stimulation uh, when doing these injections, and our dosing amounts are also fairly similar. So I would say overall the approach that we did, even though we had uh, two people doing the injections, was of a similar technique. I was wondering that, and that's good to know that you were the one performing the injections. Yeah, and we actually tried to look at and see, was there a difference in the responsiveness so in uh, shear wave speed or the, the ultrasound results or range of motion based on having a couple different individuals do them? But in the end, we ended up not being powered enough to look at those measures. Mm-hmm. Your answer also kind of leads me into my next question. So nowadays, ultrasound-guided injections seem to be coming more into vogue. I used air quotes there. I realize no one can see me, but I use them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and more and more clinicians seem to be moving away from the landmark-guided uh, injections. I'm wondering if you had used image guidance for any of those injections, do you think it would have impacted the outcomes at all? That's a, a very interesting question, and I know there are some folks who are very strong in the camp that we must be doing these injections with ultrasound guidance to be sure that we're injecting this medication in the area that we expect. In my practice, I actually typically use electrical stimulation for my injections. Occasionally, I will use ultrasound, but in part of my practice and starting out, do I need to be moving more towards the ultrasound guidance? The literature out there actually doesn't really show a, a big difference between electrical stimulation versus ultrasound guidance as far as effectiveness of the injections. 
both seem to be more effective uh, with regards to the results of the injections than anatomic guidance alone. But in general, there really isn't a significant difference if you're using electrical stimulation versus using ultrasound guidance. So I have to admit, um, my residents who do a lot of ultrasound guidance for other types of injections seem to feel better being able to see exactly what they're injecting. I would agree with you. That seems to be a very common trend I'm seeing as well. And, you know, I think in in some respects uh, it's very helpful early on for the injector to be able to see that anatomy as they're learning. And get comfortable with that in the the locations of doing the injections. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I I find that uh, the more guided injections I do, the better I get at non-guided as well. They sort of of support each other. Uh, Well, thank you for that. You know, one finding as I was reviewing results that surprised me somewhat is that it seemed that some of the patients in the study after uh, having botulinum toxin injections seemed to show a a decrease in their ankle range of motion after the injections. Uh, What were your thoughts about that and what would be your explanation for those findings? Um, You know, there's a a couple of reasons potentially for that and certainly that could have skewed some of the data bit, given that there was a small sample size and only um, nine kiddos who were able to complete the study. One reason for a loss of range of motion may simply be the tool that we were using. In trying to keep this as clinically applicable as possible, we were sort of going low-tech with some of our measurements, including using a goniometer. And a goniometer can have a, a range of variability uh, within that measurement, somewhere between 4 to even up to 14 degrees for individuals with cerebral palsy. So some of it could have been inherent error with the measurement tool we were using. Some of it could have been folks that weren't responders for one reason or another to the injections. And so despite having that, uh, didn't have a robust response as far as spasticity reduction and continued to develop shortening of the muscle from that overactivity. It it was such a short time. I don't think something like growth or things like that would necessarily affect it. We did keep an eye on, on BMI and size for our kids and didn't notice a significant change in that. So I don't think something like growth over a generally three to four month period would necessarily affect it. So it could be potentially tool or potentially not responding to the injections. Thank you. That's a you know very thorough and adequate explanation of that, <laughs> of that particular issue. I appreciate that. You know, at the end of the article, you, you start to allude a little bit to some of the potential practical applications of the technology, including I found interesting, uh, you briefly alluded to even the potential use in prevention of uh, spasticity and, and loss of range of motion for some of your patients. You know, I, I think given that this technology, you know, may be a new concept to many of our listeners, uh, could you possibly kind of paint a picture for how you might envision this technology being used in, you know, routine clinical practice or for prevention uh, in the future? Sure. So one of the thoughts that I've had with regards to use of this technology is basically making it sort of an extension of the physical exam. And once or twice a year, uh, have the children as part of their exam when they're coming into clinic to also undergo ultrasound evaluation of particularly problematic muscles, be it the gastroc, the hamstring, and looking at how the stiffness of this muscle changes over time. And that may impact when we decide to proceed with injections, where it looks like their muscle is increasing in stiffness, may be a sign that we really need to move forward with doing additional injections to help the muscle Um, basically relax, so to speak, in order to tolerate stretch. Another part is that 
over time when we do injections, we know that the muscle can get atrophied and at times may even have a, a bit of extra connective tissue formation to make up for loss of muscle um, from the chronic neuromuscular blockade from botulinum toxin injections. And that extra connective tissue can actually make the muscle stiffer too. So it could be a sign of somebody who's moving in the direction of being a non-responder to the botulinum toxin injections. You know, one of the things that I find interesting is that these kiddos have increased passive stiffness of their muscles to begin with. So one of the things that I find intriguing is whether or not more permanent interventions change um, this stiffness that they have in their muscles. So say things that we do like selective dorsal rhizotomy, um, where we do permanent spasticity reduction by selectively cutting over active nerves uh, for the legs. And so this may be a way of looking at effectiveness of that type of procedure by measuring their passive stiffness before we do the procedure and then following them out over time after they have that type of procedure. Wonderful. Thank you for that. It's certainly exciting to think about you know, potential new paradigms for care. So thank you for outlining that. I think it's also helpful to have some additional objective measurements to help us in our clinical decision-making. Absolutely a critical component. I'll pass the mic back to Dr. Miglior for our next question. I saved the hardest one for last. Get you warmed up. Exactly. Um, So in the medical field recently, there seems to be a growing focus on gender equity research, uh, specifically in our field with the work Dr. Julie Silver is doing up at Harvard. The spotlight really has been on the challenges female physicians specifically face. Um, so as, you know, I'm a female physiatry resident, and I'm sure there's going to be some other ones listening, do you have any advice for us? <laughs> oh, that is a tough one. Uh, I have to admit that advice uh, would come merely from primarily mistakes that I I have made and the things that I have learned along the way. I think one of the things in particular that has been helpful for me is having mentors, both formal and informal mentors. I know the whole reason that I am a physiatrist is because of a female physiatrist when I was in medical school who helped me discover the field and in particularly um, pediatrics. And she continues to be a mentor for me even as I'm approaching mid-career. I hate to say that. And in my clinical practice, I have a, a partner who I look up to with regards to her patient care and her approach to interacting with patients and families. And while I've never had a formal mentorship relationship with her. I admire what she does and, and how she balances her work and her life and her family. And, and so I've used that as sort of an informal mentorship. But I also have mentors who are men because in, in research, and in particular, I've been moving a little bit more into doing some basic science research. It's difficult to find women who are established in the field for mentorship. And so I think um, it's not always based on what sex the person is, but on what they bring to the table and if you feel like that's a good fit for you. But I do think mentorship is important, both formal and informal. Also, I found out that being organized is super important, especially when you have a family 
um, and making sure that everything is set with regards to, for me, I have a, a little girl who's uh, active in multiple things after school and trying to make sure that all of that is set in addition to balancing the clinical work and my research work. And so I sort of joke with the residents that I live and die by my calendar. And if you want to know where I am at just about any given time of day, you can take a look at my Outlook calendar and figure out where I am in order to be able to know how to get a hold of me or or what I'm doing or if I'm available for a meeting. So being organized has been really important, and it was something that I had to learn how to do. I I didn't need to do that before, but as my responsibilities grew, um, I couldn't keep track of everything just in my head. I think the other thing, in particular, I think female um, physicians who have significant others and or children or lots of friends that you like to spend time with is is being sure that you be conscious about prioritizing time with them too. It's it's easy to get pulled into the clinical work and all the documentation, the phone calls that you need to make, and working longer and longer hours to keep up with that on top of the research responsibilities and the grant writing and the paper writing and the data processing, but if you don't take time for your family and your friends, it's hard to keep yourself emotionally healthy. Uh, I'm a big believer in exercise, too, and so trying to find time to balance that. For me, doing that in the morning, because I can tell you by the time I get home, I do not feel like doing exercise. So I try to prioritize time for myself in the morning to do the things that help make me more productive during the day. Everybody talks about work-life balance which is incredibly difficult and at times has to shift. So there are times when there may need to be deadlines or priorities at work that need to take a little bit of priority over some time with family, but then there are times when that's going to need to shift to um, time that you need to spend with family, be it um, some activities that your children have, maybe an illness in the family, and so being aware that that work-life balance isn't going to be the same all the time and having some flexibility in shifting that. Um, it's based on, I guess, my experience and, and in particular things that I've, I've learned the hard way. Thank you. That's good. I'm going to put um, all those things into my Alba calendar now. Yes. It's <laughs> amazing, and it really does. I, that's, that's what I use to stay organized. Dr. Brandenburg, I really appreciate your insight uh, with all of those things, and I, I really think a lot of our listeners are going to find that incredibly helpful. And uh, you know, thank you for really including the personal touch about about your own life. I think uh, people are going to really appreciate listening to that. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, that's really all of our questions today. Uh, we really thank you for uh, being on our podcast. Uh, I really hope our listeners will go into their journals, either in print or online to take a look at this article uh, in more detail to really get a better understanding of the great work that you've done here. Dr. Brandenburg, did you have any other last thoughts or comments about uh, the project or anything else we discussed today? I greatly appreciate you guys taking the time and your interest uh, in the work that we're doing. Uh, We certainly are. It's a very, very interesting project, and we look forward to seeing more of your work. Thank you all for listening today. I hope you join us for our next AAP, American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation podcast. Uh, Thank you very much.